This week on Tunnel Vision, we talk with Ellie Pariser um, on his new book, The Filter Bubble, on the promise of openness of the internet versus the interests of big companies and what's being filtered from us. We also have Heather on the road from Canada down to New York uh, joining us on the show. And Kevin, what else? And we also talked about how um, potentially the internet can fight back against these filter bubbles by allowing us to find people who are interesting to follow um, and, and listening a lot and sharing a little. This is episode 66 of Tunnel Vision. Show 66 with guest Eli Prizer from Move On. Tumble Vision is the space where our human and tech selves intersect. It's a weekly salon style podcast about how we connect and create a world that puts people in the center of business, tech, and culture. And every week we have different awesome people in here and we explore different dimensions of tumbling with people who are helping make this kind of more networked digital world happen. Now, tumbling, what the hell is that? WTF, I will tell you. It's a Yiddish word, tumul, uh, and to tumul means literally to make noise. Uh, Tumblr is an old job. Someone would get hired to entertain at a wedding and get people to dance. And they got kind of famous in the Catskills era of Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar, where Tumblrs were kind of part social cruise director and they, they performed, but they also got the guests involved. They got guests into the show and they made people feel comfortable and part of as a, a community through that. So, if you want to know how do you really make collaboration work in a network age, how do things run when no one's just in charge and command and control, the answer is Tumul. So uh, we are going to have a really fun conversation with Eli Pariser. I have to tell you, first of all, co-host, I'm Heather Gold, and my other hosts are Deb Schultz in San Francisco. Hello, all. Tonight is in San Francisco, and is he with us, Kevin Marks? He's working on getting with us. Getting on the, on the Wi-Fi at a, at a conference in the Valley? Is he in Silicon Valley? Uh, no, he is in Denver attending GlueCon, a very geeky, cool conference, which is all about networked stuff. So I'm sure he'll talk about it. Very cool. So Kevin is our link whisperer. And if you join us live, you'll see uh, TumbleVision.tv every Thursday at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. There's a really active chat room where we have live conversation and try to involve people as much as possible and we have a special extra treat because i'm doing the show from a car in southern ontario <laughs> driving towards the border towards buffalo with former tunnel vision guests and my chauffeur as deb put it laura fitton hey pistachio, hey, pistachio. i just spoke at the mesh conference amazing conference and now i'm looking forward to hearing the show tonight so just imagine i've got a laptop with a little little stick in it online and a phone online and i've split my headphones i've got one in one ear laura's got one in the other ear and this is exactly what people thought would be happening when they came up with the internet the future (laughs) yeah and i and i do need to just jump in and say that it is highly um amusing to me that episode 66 a la route 66 is the Uh one where you're in a car perfect had to to put that in or on the very Beautifully paved roads paid for by Canadian taxpayers. They're immaculate. I'm back in Canada. I'm based in Canada now, though I'm quite nation fluid. I'm heading to New York uh, tomorrow. So uh, appreciating, you know, the taxes apparently get things done here. 
So we try to hit a couple things that have happened in the news quite quickly, and then we're going to get in pretty deep pretty quickly with uh, Eli. We're really, whoa, lucky to have him here because, uh, no, 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 we've got to get Laura back on, on the track here, um, who's been doing some really amazing, uh, a lot of presenting for quite some time around this idea of there being a filter bubble, which we'll get into more about what that means, but why it is, how is it that we're going to really meet and talk about people and ideas and things we don't already know, which is exactly what I'm sure the three of us believe tumbling will, will solve, or that's my hope, that we'll find that we have some solution for, for Eli. So the things that have kind of happened this week are uh, a couple of, actually a couple of important things happened. Well, I don't know how important. Laura's told us LinkedIn IPO this week. I think that's important. And to you, Laura, why is it important? Uh, well, they're one of the longest-running social networks that's still viable. And one of the first. And, you know, they put it into the context of work. And I think we, we overestimate the personal connections and kind of underestimate that this needs to permeate the rank and file of the workforce. So says a leader of 140.com. So, which is focused on mostly small business or all business? Uh, business. So-called business. So... The thing that I wonder about that is, is it the first freemium social network? Yeah. Um, it might have, it might, was it the first? Um, it might have been. That, that's a good point. It might have been. Oh, CompuServe and AOL. And- well, just in terms, yeah. it, it's particular business model. Yeah. You know, I, I think yeah. CompuServe and Prodigy, I don't think of as going well, on they- freemium that Free they were t- there. they were totally not freemium because when I got on the net in the early nineties, AOL was ten dollars an hour between the hours of nine to five, and five dollars an hour after that. I distinctly remember that. As was CompuServe and Prodigy, they had these weird business models. So, talk about yeah. how much has changed in fifteen years. Access uh, to the net wasn't happening in cars. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, so another thing that happened this week is the EG8 happened in Paris, and I. Did get to watch a little bit today. There was a press conference. I don't know if it was yesterday that uh, Larry Lessig and um, Jeff Jarvis, who's been with us, and I'm trying to remember who else, uh, Yochai Benkler, and I think Burners Without Borders, and basically the top G8 economic G8 got together, had a conference. I don't really know a summit, which Umara Haig was pointing out this week, is sort of what people in oligarchical systems do as opposed to having an open network thing for people and just kind of had the entire conversation about how can we shut down a lot of things online and so Jeff and Larry and these guys were, were upset and called a press conference to sort of say that people aren't really being represented basically you and me most of us who use the net because almost all the conversation I think of that conference was about Oh, stiffening up copyright law and trying to get government a big slice of the content pie, uh, which, among other things. So that that's the thing that I think happened um, this week. Did Were you able to, to follow any of that? Is Kevin here? Yeah, with uh, us? No, well, no, we're still working on getting him in. We'll, we'll get him in. Um, I don't know if he was able to follow it or not. Um, I, I missed a lot of it, I have to say, but um, could not agree more that the concept of a summit as in a peak, as in a hierarchy, as in a point, as in a top-down is the furthest thing from a network <laughs> that you can get. Um, though, I do understand, though I do understand they need- um, the, the need for a certain amount of hierarchy, there are ways to make it open while you still have honchos there and i don't think um this year was the year that that happened kevin did you get a chance to follow any of the g8 stuff did i just hear your voice 
Um, I was staying up late watching quite a lot of it, yes. And um, So fill us in. And that did mention sort of the press conference that Jeff and uh, Jarvis and Larry Lexig and, and so on did sort of making a statement about what the problems and, and, they had. And, and, with... and Susan Crawford and, and yeah. Right. Yes. I lo- Susan I love Crawford that. was very, very eloquent. As you as expected, and we need to have her on the show. No, yes, so, so, Kevin, what's your take on the summit and on practically what did it mean for for? Do you think that these governments, in concert with corporations, I mean, what the hell was Google doing, supporting this? Um, well, how would, practically how much can they shut the shut the net down? So the so the point yeah, and there was a bunch of debate back and forth. Cory Doctorow said. I'm not going. It just encourages them. Um, Jeff Jarvis said, no, I have to go and argue with them. And, 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 uh-huh. and Barlow said the same thing. Um, and, and they managed to make their voices heard, which, which kind of worked to some extent. But the difficulty is that the governments come from the perspective of how do we preserve um, our legitimacy in the face of this much more democratic movement that's happening on the net? And they're on a loser straight away. Um, uh-huh. And Sarkozy, Sarkozy's opening speech was, was very eloquent. Um, but his, you know, it was self-contradictory. He, he said, we love the net, we love its freedom, we love the openness, but we're really worried about um, monopolies and copyright infringement. It's like, you get to pick huh? one of those, because copyright right. is a monopoly. That, that, that was, it's, a, it's a medieval um, grant from the king to give you a monopoly over your, over your work for um, 70 years now. Um, it, you can either worry about monopoly, you can worry about copyright, but you can't worry about both of them without being self-contradictory. And that was that was the sort of the thread that ran through. It's like things have changed. We don't quite know why, but we want to assert that we're in control. And the the the, the reading we were getting back from the um, from the it's hard to, to do this without being like snotty about the French um, because. <laughs> Especially because you're British, so you know. Exactly. Two- no, I was, I was, I was, I was like joking about this. I was saying, you know, they were saying, Jarvis and Co were saying, this feels like the new imperialism. And I said, well, you're there to the Louisiana Purchase. You've got to do a deal with the French. And <laughs> I got this pushback from French guys saying, you're condemning the entire nation with your racism. And it's like, no, I'm making a historic analogy. You know, the Louisiana Purchase was America's way of buying off the French to get a place to expand into, and they did a bunch of nasty genocidal things. While doing that to the Indians, uh, that was, you know, you know if you want the Western white culture that hasn't done nasty genocidal things, please raise your hand. Naughty. <laughs> naughty. <laughs> naughty. Very naughty. It's tough. So, you know, so there's, there's a bunch of baggage there and there's a bunch of, you know, corporate stuff. The, the, the one that shocked me was Eric Schmidt because he was saying, yes, we should be acting as copyright police. And it's like... What the hell is he doing there with that? I mean, is it just that he, they don't think they can do some of the things they want in certain countries if they don't... Or, or is this the kind of thing where they say that out loud, but then they don't behave that well, way? The point is that there's a... Bu- there's a bu- if you actually want to talk jurisprudence and, and law and, and what makes this stuff work, um, that there's a series of things, which is common carriage um, in the U.S., um, safe harbor in the U.S., um, mere conduit in Europe which are a set of laws that say, if I'm transporting stuff for other people, it's not my problem. Um, I can host content for you, and if you're sued, I can take it down, but I'm not liable. If I'm transporting something for you that's, um, and it's illegal, that's your problem, not mine. And this goes back to the, the laws for canals in like the, the 17th century or something. The, the point is, if you're carrying something for somebody else, 
you don't have consequent liability just because you're carrying it. And that was the, the, the precedent they mapped through into the internet that set up the ability to host other people's content without being able to be sued, which meant that you right. could be an ISP, you could be YouTube, uh-huh. you could be a blog host, um, you could host a bunch of stuff. Um, and the, the sort of the follow-on from that was the, um, the Copyright Act, which said that they gave the notice and takedown provisions, which said if you say something that somebody objects to... Um, you have to tell them about it quickly and you have to take it down, but they have the right to appeal and put it back up. So there's this sort of set of case law and so, stuff that's come up. And Schmidt wasn't... So Kevin, that. I'd like to get... Um, to, to uh, Kevin. Yeah. Kevin. Kevin. Hello. I don't know if you can hear me. Hello. I can. I can. We can, can hear you, me. Heather. Go ahead. Uh, I'd like to get Eli in. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Hello, Eli. Welcome to our fun... Okay, Hi. sorry, couldn't tell. Were you, first of all, welcome to Tumble Vision. It's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you for Just so some that. folks get a sense of, of your, I mean, if they don't already know you, maybe you can just describe sort of what you're, what you, you know, what I guess people know you for, but what you're focused on right now. And I'd love your thoughts on, on what was going, if, if you were following the EG8 and what's been going on there. Well, um, I, uh, by way of introduction, I, uh, you know, uh, most uh, for for most of the last decade was running MoveOn.org and um, really trying to figure out uh, ways to use the internet to empower citizens and help people, um, you know, make make their voices heard politically, but also, you know, what was what was really exciting about that project was that it sort of. To, to me, it sort of pointed toward the possibility that the internet could really make a much more decentralized, democratized world. And more recently, I've been concerned that that's sort of not the way that things are headed. And, and, uh, and just, so was the EGA just a real reflection of that for you? Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it, you know, it speaks to, uh, you know, there's sort of three parties here. There's, there's, the big companies that uh, you know own these platforms. There's the governments, and then there's all of us. And the challenge is that uh, you know the those those companies need the governments as much as they need us. Maybe they need them more than they need us. <laughs> uh, and so you have this alliance building um, that cuts a lot of consumers out of the you know a lot of a lot of regular people out of the equation that the sort of the voice of the internet is not there uh and you know arguably can't be there because the voice of the internet isn't someone the internet can't send delegates (laughs) damn it (laughs) though if we had our way (laughs) (laughs) i mean we you know maybe we could but uh but it, but it but it is this sort of multivocal uh you know thing that by definition sort of the the best pieces of the internet and um you know so i think this it, it draws attention to i mean i think there's been a number of things recently where people have started to realize oh you know facebook and google these these big companies may sort of have happy consumer facing brands but really they're 
you know, they're in it to dominate and they're in it to make money for shareholders and they're in it to win. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to put a lot of the values that, that most of us care about up front. You know, the Facebook, the Facebook PR stunt being another right. example of that. Which yeah. was, interestingly enough, um, you know, with, with Mark Penn, who managed Hillary Clinton's campaign, that PR firm. So the, the sort of political stuff, they, to what degree do you, do you view, Eli, these companies as almost like nation states, like political actors themselves? Well, I mean, uh, you know, they're not nation. I mean, I think Tim Wu is very smart on this. And, mm -hmm. you know, he sort of pushes back against the idea that there is no law on the net and there never should be. And, you know, actually, I think that obscures really what's going on here, which is that, um, you know, Google and the U.S. government have a very tight relationship. Um, and... There are lots of Google staff that moved into the White House, and there are lots of, sure. you know, the, the NSA or some unnamed agency posted people who worked out of Mountain View for a while. You know, there's sort of a very close relationship there because ultimately Google does depend on the, on, uh, on the U.S. government to, to work. It, it wouldn't want to be based anywhere else. Um, so, so... I think sort of the view that they are kind of – I think it's important to remember that they do depend on governments for a whole bunch of things and therefore that they r return favors, you know, that they – that there's a whole bunch of things that they – Like what kind of, for example, what kind of favor? Well, I mean, so Google actually has been better on this, but certainly Microsoft and Yahoo and a bunch of these other big companies have been very willing without any kind of subpoena or anything to turn over masses of user information. Um, I don't know if you remember back in 2007 or 8 when um, the Justice uh, Department basically uh. said, oh, excuse me, could you just hand over a few million customer records so that we can, we're just kind of testing some stuff out and we're just wondering if you can hand us over like a few million records of customer information. And most of these companies did it without, you know. Was this AT&T? Uh, well, that that was a separate thing. That was but separate. It's, this was AOL and Yahoo. AT&T was a separate even even more heinous thing. Right. But, but, uh, it, it, I mean, the point is you don't even, I mean, we don't even know probably the most egregious examples of this kind of collusion, but Google and these agencies and, and most of these big companies in these agencies are in touch a lot of the time. And, uh, they have, they both benefit from, uh, you know, from, from having a good relationship. So I don't, um, so, so I'm just pushing back against this sort of, I think, I think if you see them as too independent and too able to kind of go wherever and do whatever, you miss the important fact that they actually have a motive to, to, uh, you know, get in very, very tight with, with governments. Well, they do to some extent, but they also have – they understand that their duty is to the, to the people whose data they're holding too. Um, and so they will fight back on those grounds because otherwise they would lose every Gmail account if, if they thought – if there was – if they thought that all that could be searched by the government or subpoenaed at any time. And, and they have fought back on the – Well, but it can um, be. I mean – Fourth Amendment appeal and so on. Yeah, no. I mean Google has been better on that than most. 
But most of these companies, I mean, when did Yahoo's, you know, stock price tank because it handed over all of this customer data without a subpoena? You know, I, I, I missed that. You know, it's that right. people, uh, and, and part of that's because very few people even knew about that. Well, um, also, Eli, I, you know, related to this, because I think the, the fact that the EG8 happened this week and, and your new book, Filter Bubble, there's linkages here, right? So can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the premise of the book and, and you, know, you, you know, because of these large big company interests sort of, you know, to me, the, the, one of the issues is, and hopefully your book will help with that, educating people on what's really happening. That's why there was no right. uproar with the Yahoo thing. I don't think you're... You, you know, your average user kind of understands and uh, of what's going on. And so to really um, explain that the Internet you're getting might not be the Internet you think you're getting or if right. I said that right. Yeah, no. And, and it, it, you know, so so one of the core pieces of this that relates to the EG8 piece is I think the way that most, especially Internet promote proponents describe the Internet is wrong in a way that uh, allows companies like Google and Facebook to sort of minimize how people see their power. So, you know, the sort of mythology is this gatekeepers, you know, in the in the old days there were gatekeepers and they were editors and they decided what we knew and they were elites and it was bad. And now everybody can talk to everybody and there are no gatekeepers and it's, you know, free-for-all uh, and it's democratic that's not actually what's going on. And in fact, you know, an enormous amount of, inf- of, of internet, internet traffic runs through Google and an enormous amount runs through Facebook. And we don't actually just connect to each other. We connect to each other, you know, right now, we're not just decentralized connecting to each other. We're connecting to each other through Skype. And Skype sits in the middle of that transaction. And if Skype decides that it doesn't want to facilitate these kinds of calls, then these kinds of calls stop happening. Right. So I think it's really important to remember that we haven't, you know, in the in the early 2000s, there was this sort of disintermediation. Everybody talked about this word disintermediation, which <laughs> yeah. is even, even pronounced, but, uh, you know, which meant kind of getting rid of the middleman, getting rid of the media, going direct. And we haven't done that. You know, we're as mediated as ever. We're uh, going through intermediaries. It's just that they're software. They're not you know, human editors. Yeah, I mean, completely. And and the fact that they're not hierarchical organizations or uh, that it's so frictionless, to use another popular word today that's usually used in, in a positive sense, right? Things are frictionless, they're great. But because it's so frictionless, like you just said, you you can't feel and touch it. And so most people don't realize what's happening, right? Right, I mean, and and... Where the book comes in is, you know, what the filter bubble is about is the way that these intermediaries shape and distort, you know, how we see the world. That we're, we're looking at the world through um, these lenses of Google and Facebook and, um, it, you know, increasingly they're personalized. They show us what they think we want to see. And um, if you don't sort of know how that's shaping your information environment, then you have a, a problem because you start to think that this, the distortion is the reality. Right. And, and you know, look at, what, look at the Bing and Facebook thing. And usually it's sort of um, uh, hidden. I mean, hidden is a really strong word. But 
under the guise of, isn't this great? Because now you can hear what your friends have to say. Like, um, it's usually slipped into this social thing, a la Bing and Facebook, right? Or, or it's right. like Yahoo's entire marketing campaign now is about right. your world, your way, right? right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Right. It's, it's also because it's something... I mean, until, I haven't had a chance to read the whole book, Eli, but it's something that, that machines do well. It's something they can do with databases, is keep feeding you more of what they know about you. Well, yeah, I, I would argue that they don't... They could, in theory, do it well, and that mostly they don't actually do it that well. Um, that that there's a whole bunch of things, you know, that drop out. Um, I, I was talking to Chris Dixon, who runs Hunch, yep. which is mm. you know, up in personalization company, and he said, you know, so this is a tricky thing because on the one hand, with five data points, we can predict with eighty percent accuracy your answer to any other question. Um, you know, and on the other hand, you would never look at those five data points and say they were a good portrait of a person. You're, you know, all you would be able to do with those five data points is to be able to say, well, this guy's a, this is a male, so he's going to be more interested in cars and gadgets than your average bear. You know, this is a white person. You know, it, it, it's in a way, it's sort of, it, it works well enough to make, you know, some money doing it, but it doesn't actually work well enough right now, I think, that it reflects the nuances of, uh, you know, a, a human being. Well, so there's there's two bits to that. I mean, one is that um, the weird thing about Hunch was they got people to give them enormous amounts of data by framing it as quizzes. Right. So they would say, tell, tell us about yourself. Oh, you know, it's like, um, which Star Wars character you type quizzes or Cosmo quizzes, whatever. And people go, oh, and they keep typing stuff in and they get more and more data about the people. But it's also what? under the it's also under the premise of this is going to be good for you to help you because I mean even if it wasn't a sure, quiz, but that's always the that's always know. the right. Cosmo quiz. It's like what kind of lover are you type quiz. You know, right. it's it's there's, there's there's a pattern they're tapping into right. there. But mm-hmm. but Katarina said they ran out of questions. So they 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 built you know a thousand questions. People got to the end because they were so interested in typing stuff about themselves because they were it would they was like the the Eliza bot that, that you talk that pretends to be a psychotherapist. Right. It's like, yeah. I'm dumping myself into this machine. Right. Um, and, and, and then, yeah, then they can, then they can run algorithms and get something out. But I noticed that all my female geeky friends, um, it thought they were male. Gina Trapani. Of course. Uh, Pamela Fox. He said, of no, they're, 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 they're clearly male. He's like, no, actually <laughs> they're women and they like technology and your database doesn't actually understand that concept. Right. Cannot it, compute. Cannot compute. And the, you know the danger here is that it, it, because I mean basically one of the things I talk about in the book is that earlier on um, it, there was uh, it, you know there in, in the 1990s uh, you know there was this whole big fad about um, you know about intelligent agents and. Uh, yes. Yes. For, for a little while, there was this idea that, you know, we were all going to have e-butlers that would have a little face and would greet us every morning and say, here you are, sir, here's your paper. I've clipped out the cutting, you know, the, 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 the uh, articles you'll enjoy. Um, and it actually went as far as, you know, people starting to build these products. And there was Microsoft Bob and there was the Newton was sold as kind of a intelligent personal assistant sort of leaning in this direction. And when and it was it was a complete debacle um and it was a complete debacle because when you actually 
tried to pretend that it was a human being who knew who you were and was doing things for you, it was obvious that it was incredibly, like it was incredibly dumb and and bad at what it was doing. Uh, it did a very poor job. Well, you know, you know, so so in a way, you know, what's happened is that that they've taken that same, um, you know, they've taken that same code and embedded it into the web and done it in a way where you don't have that experience of directly confronting how bad it's, it's picture of you really is. Well, why don't you directly confront how bad it is? Well, because you don't, you, uh, often you don't it. actually know that it's happening. Yeah. You're you know, not you aware of it. You're, you're not aware right. of this. Uh, it's background subtext. But, but I mean, so, okay, uh, you know, let me push back a little bit because we had – the thing they're trying to defend against is, is the, the trolls and the comment spammers. So we had this sort of public internet um, in Usenet, in mailing lists, in blog comments, and what mm-hmm. happened was the one noisy person could destroy the entire conversation. And so the thing that these, these filters are trying to defend you against are those people who turn up and dominate the conversation by throwing out brickbats and, and, and being nasty. And, well, but, um, and, and I, don't, I don't object to that, but part of what I do object to is, you know, it's, it's done invisibly, you know, and I think anytime yes. you have something, you, you have a sort of an editing rule at play that invisibly edits, you know, sort of what you're seeing and what you're not seeing, that can be a very dangerous thing, especially if people aren't even aware that it's happening in the fir- first place. Like, right, I, right. I don't mind that the New York Times comments, you know, very, they're very clearly very heavily curated. They're actually very good comments. I actually read them, you know. But it, it's obvious that that's at work. You know, they, they, they make pretty clear that you don't just get to post your comment and it, it goes on the page. And that's also not, and that's also not, I didn't mean to interrupt, but let's not, also not conflate, you know, what we talk about a lot here is there's a difference between a human curation and a, a binary technical filter. And I think the scary thing yes. also is what I've been thinking a lot about lately, and especially made my way through most of the book, um, Eli, is why is it that we have so little faith and trust in our human brain? You know, it's, it's as if, you know, it's, it's this attitude we have in the tech world and we're all in the tech space, you know, we love it. Right. But yet everyone wants to go down this path of the technology can do it better. Um, and, no, it, and, that, and that's what we, well, that's what I have we fight a theory, against. But I, I have a theory, but I want to hear what, what, what Eli thinks it is. Well, why do you, I think it's partly that why. for some things it it really is. I mean, you know, I think for um, if I Google pizza, and actually what I mean by that is I want to find a local pizza place that's open. I want to find numbers. Uh-huh. You, you know, Google's very Google's way better about that than uh, you know than anyone that you know than than any human could be for everyone. I mean, you, you couldn't have an. It would be it would be hard to have an eight hundred number that you call for pizza that would be as good as Google. Um, the challenge is, you know, that's sort of uh, what they call an information retrieval task, and it, that's what a lot of searching turns out to be. You know, I, I want my dentist's phone number. Uh, the challenge is that that's not actually how people use the tool all the time, and and how people think of Google is sometimes. Uh, you know, this is a tool that gives me a map of the world. That's where you get into right. trouble because your your map is is 
it's not a map. <laughs> it's skewed. But so, so your concern is that these these intermediaries that we don't even notice. Some people don't even notice anymore as intermediaries in a way that maybe we're aware ABC as a television network is, but maybe that Google isn't because it, it appears to be this sort of neutral uh, informational thing kind of the same way i guess the dictionary was for people yeah. do you think that that um it, how much of what you're concerned about is that and how much of what you're concerned about is the difficulty in being with things that are different having unexpected experiences people who don't know each other being together and that that kind of latter group of issues i wonder if they're new i don't know how new they are to t- i don't personally think they're new to the web i think they're we, we're getting an extension of our existing problems uh, their social, cultural, political problems. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's amplified. Um, and, it, it, you know, there's a great book called The Big Sort, which talks about how people, um, you know, increasingly live in neighborhoods with other people who are who are like them. It's a, in America, it's like a, a massive shift uh, from 30 or 40 years ago. And correspondingly, the number of people who know someone of a different class has dropped by like half, according to Robert Putnam. So, um, you know, so you have this self segregation on a on a geographical level. I, you know, sort of hoped and imagined that the internet would counter that, you know, and that you would be able to kind of leave your geographic neighborhood when you went online. And I think well, increasingly that's that's hard to do. You know, that even if you take all the trouble of logging on on a private browsing window and, and what have you, uh, it, you know, Google's looking at your IP address and showing you the stuff that people in your locality are most likely to click. Well, I mean, historically that was true. I mean, that was the um, suddenly the explosion of the ability to find people who were like you but were different. Um, and if you, if you read the... Um, like the the queer theory stuff and the history of that, we, there was there was a sudden explosion of we can connect with these people who are like us, um, who are who are outsiders wherever they are. Um, but there's obviously downsides to that too. There was you know the um, it, it helps you connect the extremists together. It also helps you connect the um, uh, bulimic um, advocates. Right. <laughs> things like that right this is place this is how you this is how you get things like there's a whole movement online to be a better anorexic yeah right yeah right now they're going to coach each other and uh, right so there's a specialty thing in this in this in the same company but i mean i think you know i part of what got me thinking about this obviously is that move on is uh you know about aggregating a large group of people who have similar ideas about politics and want to do something about it um but but you so know, is the Tea Party, and you know, and that's... so is the Tea Party, and so are a lot of other things, and and in itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if it's not balanced by a sense that uh, there actually is another perspective that you need to hear, and there actually is sort of more to the world than this one very narrow interest that you share. I mean, I think it's it's sort of easier than ever to just dive very very deep into this one sort of. Uh, uh, Access of affiliation and lose sight of all of the other ways that you connect with people. Totally. I, Ethan Zuckerman talks about this, um, you know, with his uh, about homophilies. You know, so right. the internet. We yes. thought that we, and and in our mind, it's a type of person, and actually more and more a, a practice of 
of wanting to connect at the edges or across the divides and, and, and not creating the essence of what this whole, you know, tumbling is about. Right. That's the essence of tumbling is that the only way that, yes, there are good algorithms, database filters that can happen a la Google and Google and the 1-800-PIZZA. But the fact is that we tend to run down the road of all or nothing. Like technology can solve all the problems. It can't. It's good for, let's acknowledge what it is good at, what is actually going on to the point of your book, right? And what humans are best at and, and should be doing and build tools. And if we don't acknowledge that there's a piece that has to happen across the divides here, right? And different groups relating to each other and different people bumping into each other. Well, you know, we're just going to keep building more and more tools that make more and more digital gated communities, right? And so... It's, right, and it's it's also, I mean, this, it's, 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 it's uh, these things aren't independent variables. Uh, right. So, right. you know, one of the, there's this conversation that, uh, I, I sort of in the research for the book I came across between Walter Lippmann and John Dewey and in, in the 1920s. I that piece, so that was good. Yes. Yeah. Share, and, share. And so, so Lippmann, uh, you know, is sort of more of, uh, I, I mean, Lippmann was actually sort of the original sort of, uh, starting point for a lot of what we now think of as journalistic ethics and really was a critic of how newspapers, which were at the time very sensational were, were, um, you know, making it really hard to have a functioning democracy. He he got very cynical. You know, he 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 moved toward a position which was essentially that uh, you know that you couldn't expect common people to ever really have a very good grasp of what's going on, and that's why you need experts. And the experts should really kind of be running the show, and the common people should be uh, acting as a check on them. So he brought in the, the Platonist thing. This Sorry. is the, the the platonic guardian of of our interests. Yeah, no, it was it was sort of the elites as like benevolent uh, technocrats. You know, this is sort of the the Bloomberg administration's idea of itself that you know we're just we're just figuring stuff out here using the best science, and there's no politics to it, and uh, leave this all to us. And John Dewey's response to that was that um, really, you know, sort of. It, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you have, when you give up on the potential for people to participate meaningfully in making decisions about their lives or about the country, that they give up too, and that actually you can also build institutions that actually call out the citizen and people. That's partly educational. That's partly schools. That's partly uh, you know libraries or, or information organizing and retrieval places. You know and and. Uh, that that then can become this virtuous cycle where you call out the citizen and people, you call out the part of them that really wants to be knowledgeable about the world. They then call that out in their institutions, and you have this sort of this this virtuous cycle. And so, um, you know, I think it, it, the people sometimes say, "Well, you know, the the problem here really." is just that people are totally self-centered and just want to hear their own voices and don't want to know about the world. And I just totally don't buy that. I think I don't buy that either. You know, I, I think it, it totally depends on, uh, you know, we all have parts of ourselves that are self-centered and just want to hear ourselves talk and just want to hear people agree with us. But we all also have a part of ourselves that really wants to 
that, that gets a great amount of joy and uh, and depth out of experiencing things that are different. And but, it, but it takes this. It's a real skill set to create a space where you can hear those things. Um, and I don't know that we have too many of those spaces. Yeah, that, I, I I agree, and totally. I think. Well, that, well know, this is going back to the television news model. You know, there, there's this like, oh, to some extent, you know, the, the pushback on your thing is the golden age of mass media and the the, the, the enlightened newspapers are up, uplifting the masses. Um, is is the you know that that's almost what you're harkening back to, and you know that's a that's a caricature of what you're saying. But if you actually look at that, um, they were explicitly setting the agenda and they were the gatekeepers um the television news readers would would only give the context that they gave you and there's a bunch of research that 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 shows that the the fact that the tv news only ever reports the crime and the murders and the and the thefts sure um, has the same bubble effect but except that it's, it's a fear inducing bubble and you assume that everyone outside your house is is trying to attack you and assault you um, yeah. And that, that creates a, a, a separate thing. And the, and the only sort of welcoming faces you can see are the news anchors or the, you know, the, the, the people you see on television every day, the Oprahs, the, the, the presenters on, on QVC, who are these false friends that appear as your, as your guides to this world. Yeah, no, I, I'm not arguing that, uh, you know, that the TV world was a panacea by any means. I, my, my sort of, uh, I, I want to be a fierce friend to the vision of the Internet that I think we all hoped would happen. Uh, you know, I want to kind of, it, it, it's not enough for me if we're just sort of repla- replacing one set of gatekeepers with another that has some of the same sort of tendencies to to. Uh, push things toward um, pablum, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, so I think if we're going to have these, these uh, algorithmic gate- gatekeepers that are mediating so much of people's experience, then I want them to do better than the, the TV, you know, the TV world did. I mean, why should we just go from one sort of bad uh, system of information curation to another? Right. So, so how do we, I mean, my question for you is in, in writing the book and doing some of the research on how much actually is curated without our knowledge, have you come up with sort of a, um, you know, a call to action <laughs> for a manifesto? Uh, uh, like what, like, well, well what, what yeah. is it that we as, as internet citizens, I sort of, I'm, it's a leading question. I just, I kind of yeah. want you to talk about it a little bit. Well, I, you like, know, I think. Well, Go ahead. I'd also kind of like, if you don't mind, Eli, just as a follow-on to that, to to then let us know, um, I don't know how much you feel like you picked up about this tumbling concept, because I feel like at least I have some experience making these kinds of spaces. Yeah. So how can we be helpful to you? Because I feel like we do have some knowledge, and I know we would like to see more and more people do this, this be a skill set that is seen as a required strategic business skill set, governmental skill set, and just, just more and more people doing it. So... So how can we, one, your general call to action, like the Deb's asking for more specifically based on what we know, what would you like right. us to do to help? Yeah. yeah. So that's what we're all about. Spread the word. Great. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think there's sort of, there's, there's a couple things. Um, you know, one is, I, I think first people just have to understand that this is happening and how it's happening. Uh, and 
this is sort of the tricky thing about uh, this kind of uh, personalized filtering is that it's often most effective when it's the most uh, hidden from people's view. Mm. Uh, I talked to someone at, at, at these one of these companies who said, yeah, people really don't like to be told what kind of person they are, but if you just show them the links that that kind of person will like, they'll click on them more. And that's sort of the, that's the catch 22 here. So I think the, the, the first task is to just have more people understand, uh, kind of both specifically how these algorithms are, are working, but then more generally, I think to really reconfigure how we think about the internet so that we're placing enough importance on the Facebooks and Googles and these other companies that actually do play this incredibly important role in how we experience the online world. Um, you know, I think the second thing is, uh, along with this, does it is possible now to curate a much better, you, know, you can sort of curate your own information diet more than you could certainly in the, in the broadcast era that Kevin was talking about. And learning how to do that well and what the tools are for doing that well and what the tools are for doing that poorly um, you know, it seems to me to be an increasingly important skill. And I think that's where, you know, the, the tumbling piece comes in because, yes. uh, you know, it, it, in a funny way, I mean, so one way to think about this is there's a lot of things that human editors have learned over the last hundred years. And, um, it's like one of those languages that's going extinct. It's sort of, uh, for reasons not related to the inherent validity of the skill set, it's it's being phased out. And that's brilliantly put. I don't want us to slide by that. The skill set of an editor and how editors work and how they understand their community, for want of a better word, audience, listener. Um, it's an ongoing rapport and connection that they have, and they understand them it's a two-way street it's not a one dimension it's not a one direction curation and i think well that that's a, I, I, you're, you're so right it's a skill set that well, that, that I, I it's like get tum- a- wait wait let me just finish it's a skill set like tumbling that you sort of know it inherently and it and we have to make it explicit instead of implicit is what i'm hearing you say right yeah and 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 democratize you know and spread yes. i mean yes. how do you actually have people at a broad level, you know, right. learning these skills that it used to be that you had to spend 10 years in kind of apprenticeship at a newspaper to do. Here's the thing. I, I, you know, I, Deb, I think I will differ with you a little bit on this because I think that um, part of the problem of a lot of editorial, although, yes, there's obviously skill set there, is that a lot of people in editorial in a broadcast era did not think enough about um, – it as a two-way relationship because what happens is the loudest complainers end up filtering stuff a lot the same way that you have technology filters because yeah. it's such a mental emotional shift to start right. to see what you're doing is conversational and i do do uh like different workshops on, on presenting which is to teach people a kind of way to tumble how to run things conversationally instead of presentationally and it's and the the way that that works when I do it is that there's an emotional component to it. There's no way around that, and that's a shift I've heard. Say I know uh, Laura, 
uh, Fitton's just coming back from speaking at MASH with Matthew Ingram is one of the organizers of. And he used to work for the Globe and Mail, a traditional, you know, newspaper in Toronto. When he moved from being a traditional newspaper writer and reporter to blogs to the web and now eventually writes for GigaOM and now runs the Internet conference as well, that it was it took him a period of eight years maybe to change and who he was as a person changed in order to Right. Be trusting of other people and be seeing himself in the same way. If you go into listen to our episodes with Andy Carvin, that kind of detailed question asking of really a geek uh, mindset. So I think really tumbling is is about that traditional editing is still quite one way. And and the thing that makes tumbling not just curating is that mm-hmm. it's got flow to it. The point is yeah. to keep a kind of flow going on and that you're focused on making helping create conditions where people will make connections between each other so that you're not trying to make yourself this kind of FedEx hub that things have to come through that the old will and spoke, which, which editors do. And I think it takes a long time people from traditional news to get that. And some of them, I don't think ever will. Well, so, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the, the point that I didn't want us to lose Heather and I don't want, and I obviously completely agree with you is the point of it's an implicit skill set that, Many who think technology can solve all the problems think can just be transferred over. So, yeah, I agree I that, ed- ed- that editors 100% were, you know, one to many and whatever. But they had a certain implicit skill set and whether it was tenure apprenticeship and a, and a practice that we take for granted in this world where everyone thinks, oh, we just need some algorithms and filters. Um, and that back and forth flow is the thing that hopefully we can do. Um, and, and hopefully teach people to do, but I, and, and is required. Otherwise no one's going to connect and you'll get those gates that we talked about. Um, so, that, you know, that's e- Eli, from your, Eli, from your experience through politics, did you get a sense that the organizing that say the Obama campaign was doing or teaching people to do helped people learn how to do this with people to get them together? People who are different. Um, actually, you know, the Obama campaign in particular did. Yes. Um, at least the first Obama campaign, you know, it, re- it really was uh, sort of surprisingly focused on these kind of basic building blocks of how you build relationships with people and build a team. And, um, it, you know, Marshall Ganz's whole focus on storytelling as a way of starting a relationship with someone, I, you know, is kind of remarkable, actually, how how much it went in that direction, given what a normal campaign looks like. Um, who knows if that, how much that will be preserved in, in campaigns to come. Um, but yeah, no, it is, it it is a, absolutely a skill. Um, and I think, I mean, I guess I think the best editors did see themselves as in, in, in dialogue, in a flow with people and were, you know, sort of had their fingers on the pulse of the community that they were serving. I think plenty of them got totally sucked into some, uh, you know, vortex of elite cocktail party circuits. And, you know, the question is, can we take, can we learn from the best as we move into this, into this new world? You know, that's sort of, and, 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 and can we make sure that we don't just dismiss it as kind of, oh, that was the 20th century, and now we're doing things totally differently. Well, I think the, you know, the problem is, is, this, is the same problem that Oscar Wilde wrote about when he wrote about Caliban's Mirror in the, in the preface to Dorian Gray, which is that um, 
what we see on the net is our own reflection because what we look for on the net is reflected back to us. And that, that's been the same problem with search engines for a while. Um, and my, my, my sense of confidence in this is that by the sort of asymmetric follow pattern, by the ability to follow people who are potentially different from us, um, by the cross-bridging through things like hashtags and stuff like that, where there's this, there's this explicit connection through something else, there is a much shorter path between the, the anomaly and the center than there, than there has been for a long time um, because these things can bubble through there um, because we have this you know, six degrees of separation type propagation of ideas going on such that you know, if something extraordinary happens um, to anyone, it will bubble through Twitter within a few minutes. If, 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 you know, if, if somebody's plane lands on the Hudson if right. the space shuttle takes off and the photograph gets taken out of the window, we will all see that very quickly because the number of degrees between those two is very small. But also, if if a revolution happens in Tunisia and people are talking about that, that will propagate back to us in our in our comfortable sort of Western world through these connections of people saying, "There's this extraordinary thing happening. You should see this." So, in 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 my you know, in my slightly more optimistic view, um, the fact that we're now rooting through people rather than through algorithms is the saving grace of the of these new media. Well, and the the question really for me is whether we're going to continue to be rooting through people. I mean, to what degree we're rooting for people? And in, in, in Twitter, you're clearly very, you know, Twitter is sort of at the extreme of, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. And when you start following someone and, you know, who's tweeting from, Egypt, you get all of their stuff. I, I have much less confidence in Facebook's ability to propagate information about the revolution in Tun- Tunisia because it has to compete with in an algorithm that is looking at likes uh, and a few other basic signals to determine, you know, and, and likes and social proximity to determine what you see. So it, certainly there are some tools that will that make it very easy for to, to root through people, but actually the tools that people are using the most are not those ones. Yeah, and and Kevin, to your point, I mean, yes, this stuff can bubble up better now with ha- with hashtags and everything. But to paraphrase what what Eli was saying, they're not. It's it, we are taking for granted, and you agree with me on this, so I'm not talking against it. We are taking for granted that and the implicitness that people are sharing that and which people are sharing those hashtags. How is it bubbling up? So I, I think what's happening is everyone thinks it's a it's it's a one to one, right? And and forgetting that those hashtags get spread by other people who are tumbling to others and connecting to others. Everyone thinks it's just a an end unto itself. So the way that stuff actually bubbles up, which is the interesting social research that all these guys are doing these days, is who and how are are things being spread and and that practice of connecting people sadly people are taking the short route of focusing on influencer models but that's not really what's going on and that's not really how it happens best so i like that that the the eli i love the the implicit explicit that you're talking about as it relates mm-hmm. to this stuff cuz because what we're talking about is the skill and practice of that flow and connection that heather talks about and the emotion and i'm going to share um, that the plane is is went down on the Hudson with Kevin because that's who I am and he knows I'm from New York or he'll share it with me because he knew I grew up in New York and I would care about that. 
that's never going to be in an algorithm, you know, to, right. to that extent. And that's the stuff we need to make that, that we actually feel that we need to create tools for the tumblers, right? Right. So that, that we're not it's, thinking, it's, it's like, that we're not going one to one to one to one. It's one to a small, no, is, to, you know. But this is, um, this is Laura's phrase. Um, right. Heather's co-pilot of any to many. The fact Any is to many, right. The stuff can propagate from any source to the entire world. Um, but it has to catch their interest. That, that, you know, we still have the problem of people's, um, you know, poor attention skills. And, and this is, you know, some, something you sort of touch on in the book um, um, is that each of us are living in a narrative that our conscious mind is making from our sensations for us too. Um, mm. We, we each make up our own narrative that presents ourselves with a story of connectedness of, of what's happening in the world and tells us a story that makes sense of all the sensations we're receiving, but also retells that story in such a way as to present ourselves in a better light, and then that's the story we tell to others. You know, the the, the mm -hmm. imperfect narrator is, is intrinsic to the human condition. That, that's, that's part of what we have. But the way to answer that is to have more narrators to choose from rather than to say there used to be some good narrators and I remember them well. And, sure. and, and your point of the story, like that, 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 that the importance of the story, that's the, that's emotion, right? I mean, the, the reason that Facebook, for instance, among a, a lot of reasons doesn't work for me that well is because just a bunch of stuff in a stream doesn't create a story to me. You know, uh, there's no context to it very often. Um, it's all out of sync and out of context that the really good cur curators slash editors slash tumblers, if we want to. Put, glom them together, know how to create a story about it and know how to, um, uh, like you said, narrate it, Kevin, to their, to the person who's listening, right? To that well, other. Well, to some extent, that, that, you know, there is the problem of the tyranny of the storytellers. It's, it's, that's, yeah, that's it's, true too. It's easy. There are, if people can tell you a good story, they, they can, yeah. can trap you in a, in a narrative that you then that perpetuate. And that can be, a, you know, as a, you know, as, as a geek who cares about data, that can be a problem. You can get with any you mm -hmm. like, but if you can't tell a, a narrative that engages people, that won't help you convince them that evolution is real or, or you know, global warming is real or you know, anything that has actually got a bunch of, of reasoned basis to it, um, there, there can be a much stronger narrative about the world is coming to an end this weekend who we're caught up in that and enjoy that as a story. Right, because that's human so, nature. <laughs> the, the, the key piece, I think, though, is that, you know, going back to the, what Kevin was saying about, uh, you know, naive realism, which is the sort of the, the way that we all start sort of thinking that what we perceive is the world, you know, takes some time to realize that that's not actually how things are going. Um, you know, I think to, it's, it's a hard uh, condition to get out of. We never get out of it fully. Uh, you know, that's that sort of sense that we're only seeing part of the picture and that we think that we're seeing the whole picture. But uh, it's much harder to get out of if you don't know, you know, if you don't understand the sort of mechanisms at work that are doing the transformations of the information from the real world to your brain. And right. it's why, you know, understanding a bit about psychology is important and it's why understanding you know, a bit about, uh, you know, how the media works is important because it is this kind of extended nervous system that conveys these signals to our brain in very distorted ways. Um, th that's sort of why I think this, you know, actually kind of digging into this stuff um, is, is important for people who are using the Internet.
Yeah, uh, totally. You know, while we have only a couple of minutes to go, and we did get a question earlier in the uh, session from Frederick, and I'm looking for it. And before I find the exact question, are you familiar with, um, like, Umer Hawk's, you know, latest kind of economic theorems on digital feudalism and stuff like that? I haven't. I, I've only heard it in passing. I'm, I'm in passing, yeah. Intrigued. Oh, okay. Because the question was was you, sort of your point of view on it. So I wanted to. So, so Frederick, it, it, it's an interesting comparison, and we should probably get Eli and and Umer to ask each other that and put it up on our blog. But I'll give you a chance to <laughs> Eli to familiarize yourself with it before we go into that. Yeah, yeah, I, kind of, I, yeah. I can have opinions based on very little information, but not knowing. Sure. So. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. No, I just I try to pull in questions from the chat room when we can. Yeah. You know, I mean, a- Andrew, our our producer here, actually brought up a good point while we were talking a lot about this is that there's also we, we also do have you know sort of herd mentality on a lot of these spaces online where everyone sort of jumps on the pile and does the also you know the you know herd attention like you know kevin was talking about the story the, the tyranny of the storyteller but there's also sort of the tyranny of the the thing that becomes seems to become popular you know Everyone jumps on it, you know, like King of the Mountain kind of pile stuff. Yeah, I'll jump on that hashtag. I'll jump on that joke, you know. Um, and so sometimes getting new stuff in, right, is 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 increasingly difficult. And I guess with the algorithms, even more so. That's right. Yeah. What you know, you're on your book tour now, and talking about this stuff out and about. What are some of the the conversations that are happening about? You know, as you bring this up to people, are you finding people who are attending the readings or people who get this already or they're intrigued by it or they're fearful of the Internet or I'm curious what feedback you're getting out there on. Um, it's a on mix. You know, it's a, yeah. I mean, you know, the, there are people who get really worried about, you know, sort of the possibility that a few big companies are going to control this medium and do the same thing to it that, you know, Clear Channel did to radio or Viacom. Uh, right. ABC did to TV, um, you know, and then I think I've also had some really inspiring conversations with young programmers and engineers who want to dig into this and try to figure out some better ways of, of doing it. That's, those are sort of the conversations that I, that I love, uh, is when, you know, people are, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, sort of how do we build a better, a better way, uh, and how Mm -hmm. do we, do that both at an algorithmic level and at a human systems level. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, someone told me recently that journalism schools, uh, are, are, have their highest, uh, numbers of applicants ever, uh, right now. Mm-hmm. And it does strike me as this moment where there's sort of this immense creative destruction. Yes. You know, the, 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 the media as we knew it is, is fading out, but there's just this immense potential. Uh, for people to build new systems that have a really exciting new mix of values. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's even deeper than, you know, where we're talking about media a bit tonight, but uh, I I gave a recent talk at South by this year on, uh, we're we're forging a new social contract. I mean, from what what we talked about earlier tonight with the EG8, to what's happening in the Middle East, to this year's Davos, to, you know, to the topics of your book, to everyone jumping on, you know, Facebook. It's really the, the 
the we are it is this great creative deconstruction of stuff but it's when when you don't know what to expect it's very threatening so in uncertain times people people jump to their comfort zones which is probably why you get a political climate like we have now right you know some, some and so it's 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 really interesting to me what you know and and heather and, and kevin as well is there's this emotional tension that we're dealing with right now that people don't know how to deal with the sort of the economic situation, the social, I'm, people are talking to me all the time that I don't want to talk to on, on Facebook, you know, or it's, it, it's, it's on every level that, that we're sort of recreating how we want to be as global citizens, not to be too pompous, but don't you, I mean, don't you think it's like, it's, it's, it's like layers of this stuff, you know? Yeah. No, it really, I mean, it's a, it's a massive uh, transformation that I don't think we know how it will play out at all. (laughs) Yeah. And it'll, and it'll take years. So uh, so that's, I mean, that's, that's part of it. I mean, I I refer to the Douglas Adams piece about the 20th century being the anomaly where everything that we saw was mass media. We would assume that what we saw in television newspaper was true. Um, But we're culturally used to that. There is the Habermasian public that assumes that, the, right. the public of the educated newspaper readers is the entire public. And part of the sort of culture shock you see with people using Twitter is the hashtags that emerge from the broad um, mass of people that they go, what is that? And why is that so antithetical to my values? Um, and that's because it's, it's bubbled up from, it's one of these sort of random ideas like, you know, shit women say to me or whatever, comes up as a hashtag and it's like, what? And suddenly they realize there's something outside their, their personal um, set, you know, set of assumptions there. So in some ways, I'm, I'm optimistic that the, that the chaos is still there. Um, and I remember having a, a sort of long debate with Marissa Meyer and Jeff Jarvis about this, where um, Marissa was saying, we will get better and better at telling you what you should read next. And Jeff was right. saying, we should expose this to everyone. And, and I was saying, the value will come from each of us choosing who we follow and each of us deciding to take in a lot of stuff and emit a small amount of stuff that we think is, is good. Um, and gradually between us, we um, incrementally make the, the, the web better through saying, I read 100 things, I forward five things. Um, if all of us do that, then... The signal that we get by following each other um, over time get, um, recovers. And yeah, that's my sort of defense in depth engineer's response to the, the worry that the other engineers who are writing the algorithms will, will, will end up tuning all that out. Interesting. And they, they usually, by the way, you're siloing a little bit. I think to me what's exciting is, is, is the fact that Yay, you wrote the book, right? And and you're making explicit something that was hidden. And I think that's the first step. And it it will be really interesting to see um you know it, are are we as 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 users of this technology going to um step up or are we going to allow our lazy selves to take over? <laughs> right. Because, yeah, you know, that's I the mean question. that that's sort of the sad thing. I mean, you know, even in in a political sense, uh, you know, it's been great to watch the Arab Spring in so many ways, but you got to keep with it, right? All those organ, you know, what I keep getting back to is all those quote unquote back young organizers. Oh, great! Let me just finish this point. Head all these great young organizers out there who got together. Who? Whoa, is that me? 
who got together to, you know, change the the system now have to keep, now have to become a system, you know, to fight the system, right? They're organized parties at, you know, together that, that can work together just because you started something the you know, the mass of people were able to sort of start this democratic revolution. They now have to, you know, become an entity. Right. And the only, the only way I think that, that all these individuals coming together can do that is through people who get how to create a sense of community, the move ons of the world and the others. Right. Yeah whether in a political sense or otherwise, right? Because that's, you got to stick with it. That's the hard work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of complex. So, so what's next for you? Where, where are you off to next? Well, uh. On this road show. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, headed to the UK, uh, in a couple of weeks oh, for cool. the book, but, uh, but, you know, really I'm interested in the sort of the bigger question that this right. all poses, which is how do you build media that does a better job of, um, you know, really exposing people both to things that they didn't expect to see and to things that they need to see uh, and to things that they might not be the most likely to click on. Uh, um, so that's sort of the, the, the big project. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I, lo- I know that Kevin, Heather, and I would love to spend more time talking with you about this. And we're all going to be, and I'm going to plug this for our show, in New York in the fall at ContactCon, which is um, Doug Rushkoff is putting together a conference that is addressing exactly a lot of these issues of how can we build the Internet that we want it to be. That's both human and algorithmic and and takes the best of both, right? So maybe we can dig into it a little bit then. And I encourage anyone who's listening to um, check out the conference because it looks pretty interesting. I think you're going to be Yeah, there. I think it's going to be great. It's, it's I think gonna it's going to be awesome. Conference. And I'm actually even calling it a conference is probably not even, it's, 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 it's going to be more like, I think, a roll up your hands and do stuff event than big people talking. I hope. I hope that's the idea that, you know, like-minded people get together to figure this stuff out. And I think our frustration um, is, is with that we sort of get this has to happen, but we need to sort of, uh, again, spread the word that, that we need to create spaces, tools, features, whatever you want to call it. And, and an understanding of this practice of tumbling, which is what you're talking about, though. You don't necessarily use the same word. And, you know. <laughs> uh, I'll use it in the paperback edition. No. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Kev, is that you? So I wanted to throw that was me. I wanted to throw in the um, the sort of classic. Um, there are no masses. The only ways of looking people at, as as massive, right? Which was the sort of twentieth um, century view of mass media. But inverting that, I say there are no influencers. The only way of looking at people is influencers. And right. I think each of us is is potentially the prisoner of our own worldview. We 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 look at some people to influence us. Um, and assume that that is influencing the entire world. Um, there's a wonderful essay by um, called um, E Unibus Plorum by, um, oh crap, I'm forgetting his name. Which, um, it'll come back to me. But basically he, he makes this wonderful point about how television has completely influenced novel writing um, for the 1990s, um, which... You know, you read this now and you say, yes, I can see exactly what you're saying, but the world you're describing is nothing like the world I now inhabit. Um, and and you, for me, that's encouraging. I like that. So, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to 
yes. depart. Uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I hope we get to continue it at uh, ContactCon. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely will. I hope, unfortunately, we lost Heather somewhere on the road, but we'll we'll put her back in and post. Isn't that great? Great. And, um, and maybe I'll see you when I'm in New York at PDF, and we'll talk more there. Thank you so much, Eli, Good to talk to for you. being guest uh, number 66 on Tumblevision. Thank you. All right? Take Thank it you. easy. Thank you. Take care. For more about Tumblers, Tumbling, and this podcast, visit TumbleVision.tv, spelled T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N dot TV. Check out our archived episodes with our amazing guests and find out how to listen and participate in the live show with our awesome chat room every Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific time and 9 p.m. Eastern. TumbleVision is produced in Baltimore, Maryland by Andrew Hazlett of thenewmodern.net. This is Deb Schultz saying Tummel out. <laughs>